Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Professor of English and Comparative Literature Eric Gray's new book, The Art of Love Poetry. First, we'll hear Eric speaking about his book at the panel, and later I'll bring you the comments Stephanie Markovitz, professor of English at Yale, made about Eric's book at the panel. Thank you very much, uh, Alan. And um, I'm, I'm going to speak very briefly. Um, so I'm, I'm not even going to say how pleased and honored I am uh, first to have these particular uh, panelists, because I want to leave as much time as possible for them to speak. Same goes with um, all of you. I, I'm not going to say just how gratified I am um, uh, that you know so many people turned out because I, I want to leave time uh, for you know questions and, and discussion um, afterwards. Um, but I do think it's important that I say something uh, because I want to tell you a little bit about the book um, that our panelists are then going to be uh, critiquing because uh, otherwise it won't uh, make any sense. So I'm just say a little bit about uh, the content uh, of the book and then even less uh, about the methodology and then um, turn it over. Uh, so the, the book, my, my project, uh, began with a question, which is, why do we associate love so closely with poetry, or poetry so closely with love? Um, which we do, um, and, and which we always have. Um, already in the symposium, uh, Plato says that love turns anybody that it touches into a poet. Um, and, and then the reverse is also true, um, that poetry makes people think of love, um, or can make people uh, fall in love. And so, so my question is why? What, what is the association? And partly, I mean, you could just say that the answer is that, you know, it's, it's a cultural association that, that uh, simply perpetuates itself. That is to say, once, <coughs> once you've been brought up to think that love, uh, rather than poetry, is romantic, that, you know, it's always going to have that association uh, for you. And, and, you know, to some extent, uh, that, that's certainly true. But my question is, aren't there more intrinsic connections between love and poetry than that? Um, and I think that there are. And, and some, some of them, you know, when I started thinking about it, are fairly obvious. Um, so of all forms of language, uh, poetry is the most sensuous, right? It's, it's the one that accentuates the physical aspects of language and rhythm and rhyme and, and so on. Uh, and so it, it's simply more, more erotic uh, than any form of prose could be. So, you know, there, there are some sort of obvious uh, ideas that, uh, that occurred to me right away, but I think beyond that, uh, there are some essential elements, and especially some essential paradoxes, that love and poetry share with one another. Uh, so, for instance, both, both of them bear a similar relation to language. Um, they both of them depend upon language. Uh, I mean, poetry obviously depends on language, since it's a linguistic uh, construct, but, but love, too, depends on language. Uh, love longs to speak. Not to be able to speak to the beloved is, is a great uh, you know, pain. Um, so both of them depend on language, but then they also very much resist language, uh, or at least strive against its limitations and, and seek to transcend it or, or to transform it in some way. By the same token, I, th I think this is a, a related paradox. Um, uh, Poetry, poetry has, a, has a paradoxical duality uh, to it, in that poetry, we think of poetry as being the most spontaneous form of discourse, in, in the sense that it's the most, the most inspired, the most, the most unreflective. 
But then at the same time, poetry, of course, is the most self-conscious and the most ordered and the most conventional form of speech. And I think very much the same thing is true of love. Uh, That is to say that we think of love, of romantic love, uh, as being spontaneous, as being passionate, as being, you know, irresistible. But it is also necessarily self-aware and conscious and conventional. Uh, and, And I think that second aspect of love might seem a little bit less intuitive, but the more that I studied, the more that I thought about it, the more, the more I found that, that that too is essential to love. In fact, that, that awareness and self-consciousness in love is what distinguishes love from other more basic forms of attraction. Um, so th- that's just some, some examples that, that what the book sets out to do is, is to, to explore these, these sort of large structural parallels between uh, love and poetry. And the, the first chapter does that on a sort of theoretical uh, level, that is to say, it looks at theories of love and poetry across the ages. Um, and uh, obviously, you know, the, the theories change and the definitions uh, change, but what, what I found was that in any given historical moment, theories of love and theories of poetry tended to overlap, tended to share uh, very strong parallels. And then the remaining chapters, uh, each of them focuses on some aspect of love poetry to to see what it can reveal about love. Uh, So there's a chapter on invitation poems. Uh, These are poems that say, you know, come live with me and be my love. And and, and the question in that chapter is, why why is this such a a long-standing genre in Western love poetry? Uh, There's a chapter about uh, kissing, uh, about the kiss in poetry. Uh, so that, that chapter considers this other form of oral expression, an oral expression of love that reflects on the linguistic expression of love. There's a chapter on animals. Um, uh, animals are ubiquitous uh, in love poetry, but what are, what are they doing there? Um, and then there's, there's a chapter on marriage. Um, uh, most love poems are not about marriage. Uh, most love poems are about some, some sort of first love, unrequited love, passionate love. And yet married love uh, you know, is, is just as intense, and it has its own you know, subset of love poetry uh, attached to it. And so I, I wanted to think about that. So that's, that's what the book um, is about. And then as for uh, the methodology, you know, just extremely briefly, um, as you can tell from what I've just been saying, uh, the book is arranged thematically. Uh, the chapters are thematic. They're not chronological. It doesn't attempt to give a, a history of Western love poetry. And so instead, what I've done in each chapter is I've taken a whole bunch of different poems from you know, different periods and, and different uh, cultures or, or languages and, and juxtaposed them uh, to see what we can learn from that. And the only reason that I'm bringing this up is that um, that sort of trans-historical approach to literature is you know, re- relatively unusual. It's just not the way that most criticism tends to be done uh, nowadays. And there are very good reasons uh, for that, right? you know, re- reasons why we don't tend to do that, which is to say that you know, there are major risks uh, that you run by not, not uh, concentrating on a historical period. You know, if, if you're not careful, you run the risk of anachronism or else just the, the broader risk of you know, the, the sort of misapprehensions that occur when works are taken uh, or considered out of their historical context. Uh, but, but I did it anyway, um, because I thought that uh, the advantages, the, the sort of scope of inquiry that that sort of trans-historical approach uh, permits, you know, made it worth the risks. 
Um, so I'm not going to say any more about that now. I'm not going to say any more, in fact, now. Um, I, I don't know if it's something that um, the panelists are going to uh, address or not. I just wanted to bring it up um, in case it was something that people wanted to ask about uh, at the end, in addition to asking the sort of more general uh, questions about, about the book and about um, love poetry. Now we'll hear Professor of English at Yale, Stephanie Markovitz's words from the panel. When I received the invitation to speak at this event, I thought about the fact that Eric's book, his marvelous book, which includes, as he just described, a really eye-opening chapter on the convention of the invitation poem, is not itself not only an introduction to love poetry, but also a kind of invitation to love poetry. That is to say, it's an invitation to think about why people, even people who are not otherwise poets or readers of poetry, send, read, and even write poetry to express their love. Now, that was my first thought about the book, which I was lucky enough to get to read in manuscript. But rereading it now, I responded a little bit differently to Eric's closing injunction, or rather perhaps his invitation from De Rerum Natura. The, books, the book ends with the question, don't you see? This time I read a little more selfishly, considering the subject through the lens of my own current work, which, as Alan was saying, explores the role of numbers in both literature and criticism. So to adapt what is perhaps the most famous line from a 19th century love poem. How do I love this book? Well, let me count the ways. By looking at a few of the many places where Gray himself turns to counting to make sense of the relationship between love and poetry. And I should note that this is not a pattern that he addresses directly. Um, it's not in the index, for example. None of the words that I am looking at here appear in the index. But I think it offers an example of the rich rewards of his methods in the book, these transhistorical methods, and the careful close readings um, that he offers of the poems that he looks at, and their special attention that he pays to sort of questions of figuration in the works. Okay, so one. Well, this should be easy, right? On some level, this is the telos of all love, as Plato has Aristophanes explained in the symposium. Uh, Gray cites the paradoxical math of turning two into one in Shakespeare's The Phoenix and the Turtle, for example, which describes, in Gray's words, how number is slain by being reduced to perfect loving unity. So they loved as love in twain, had the essence but in one, two distincts, division none. It's Dunn's Phoenix riddle, which hath more wit by us, we two being one, are it. But if twos turn into ones, love poetry also demands that ones turn into twos. Again and again, Gray lets us see how the solitary lyric voice reaches beyond to an audience, how monologue has to become dialogue, how invitation requires a response. Two is, of course, the flip side of one, its figural other half in the calculus of love. 
So it makes sense then that Gray's book is full of tubes, two lips that kiss, two words that rhyme, but two which feels like it should be a stable configuration, evenly balanced, rarely remains so. Consider Gray's masterful reading of the double date between humans and deer that Robert Frost records in <laughs> Two Look at Two. I quote again. As the humans begin to see themselves through the animal's eyes, the poem introduces its first metaphor. They are like some upended boulder split in two. The figuration, Gray explains, is brought on by the need to account for a point of view that is truly alien, one that can itself be conceived only through similar acts of speculation and comparison. She seemed to think, as if they were something. The doe's clouded gaze provokes a reliance on metaphor's power to join and reconcile what is disparate. At the same time, her gaze cleaves the couple's elementary unity. And of course, I'm interested in his use of that word there. Split in two, two thus, starting off a process of differentiation. When two look at two, as Gray shows, and again I quote, what seems unitary turns out to be multiple, what seems still is actually shifting, what seems merely repetitive or at best affirmative can still be surprising. And not just figures, but also figuration often plays a role in the process as here. Okay, so two looking at two makes four. But we can't skip three, which turns out to be one of the most frequent numbers to which Bray has recourse in his love poetry math. Part of this is a function of lyric form. He cites Jonathan Culler's explanation of how triangulated address, by which a lyric voice speaks simultaneously to an apostrophized addressee and to an audience outside of the poem, is central to lyric as a genre. But the phenomenon is also a function of triangulated desire. And it's been a feature of love poetry, at least since Sappho, who in fragment 31 explores how, in Gray's words, the speaker's love is intensified by being channeled through a third party. I loved him for loving my beloved. Gray offers many riffs on this pattern. He describes how the title of Elizabeth Bishop's Three Valentines itself already signals an erotic imbalance. If one valentine is romantic, and two suggests the possibility of reciprocity. Three can only raise questions. Here, lyric address seems almost literalized. Ray wonders, are these valentines sent from three different lovers to one recipient, or from one busy lover to three objects of affection? Regardless, their quantity is still puzzling. It diffuses the intensity of a single lyric appeal. But the unevenness and uncertainty of the three-part structure is what lends it erotic potential. Perhaps the multi-directional approach to triangulated desire that Gray explores is most pronounced in Michael Field's Trinity. And that's a poem that the queer aunt-niece couple write on the death of their beloved dog. 
Here I quote Michael Field. I did not love him for myself alone. I loved him that he loved my dearest love. Oh God, no blasphemy it is to feel we, live, we loved in Trinity. To tell thee that I loved him as thy dove is loved and is thy own. In contrast to most love triangles, Gray points out that this one seems not to involve any sense of jealousy or imbalance. The three-way interspecies love appears to be equal on all sides and in all directions. One, two, three. I could, of course, keep going, but don't worry, I won't. <laughs> because the point that Gray keeps turning to in his discussion of numbers in love poetry is that they prove again how love poems embody paradoxes that are essential not only to love and to verse, but also to language and to experience. Thus, in Trinity, Gray explains, and here I quote again, number is drowned through love's multiplicity. The normative, indeed cliche, rhyme of love with dove, that's in the stanza I just quoted, is complicated in a sense redeemed by multiplication. The poem contains love in all its forms. Love, loved, loves, loving, beloved. 12 instances of the word in all. There he is counting again <laughs> in multiple cases. Similarly, when Gray considers the kissing poems, the basia of the numerically named Dutch neo-Latin poet Secundus, who's following in the footsteps and poetic feet of Catullus's counting poems about kisses, the point is that the poems count kisses precisely in order to declare their innumerability, or rather, Here's Gray again. It is as if kisses were born in a state of numerability, which they then strive to transcend. The same, Gray points out, can be said of poetry. And I think it's important um, in this instance to recognize the specificity of his claims to poetry. While all sorts of genres can think about love, a lot of the kinds of reading he does really demand, on poetic, demand poetic convention to make sense of them. Most poetry depends on the repetition of discrete numerable units, syllables, feet, lines, stanzas. The traditional terms of poetry stress this aspect, writing in numbers or in quantity, in measure. Yet poetry also traditionally has striven for beauty that transcends measure or the reach of art. It establishes quantifiable rules only to escape them. Even the most strictly regular poem seeks to exceed the sum of its parts. If I've here counted out some of the ways in which I admire the art of love poetry, that's to show how it is a piece of criticism that also exceeds the sum of its parts. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Eric Gray's The Art of Love Poetry. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Andreas Wimmer's book, Nation Building, Why Some Countries Come Together While Others Fall Apart. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.